Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... I, I, I think the real threat posed to the life of the nation under the rule of law and liberty is not the release of people from indefinite detention, but from laws which seek to detain people. The federal government has confirmed release conditions for the refugees released following last week's High Court decision outlawing the indefinite detention for non-citizens. Also... If we can pull carbon down into the soil, that's good for my job as an agronomist, but hey, that could be really good for the climate. The group of New South Wales farmers using fungi to turn carbon dioxide into plant-based carbon. And later today... We kind of have to stop, think that Australian people understand and the international don't. It's actually, our study shows that Australian people don't. A new study of Australian beach safety signage has shed light on the failings of current beach safety messaging. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, last week, hearings from the landmark Australian climate case resumed in Melbourne's federal court. The court is hearing from leading climate experts on the impacts of climate change and rising sea levels in the Torres Strait. The court must also address Australia's contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions. Traditional custodians have made the journey to Melbourne to join the hearings. The wise contributor from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, asked Executive Director of the Grata Fund, Isabel Reinecke, about what the case is fighting for. Yeah, so the uncles are basically arguing in court that the Australian government has been negligent and that they need to take steps to stop causing climate harm in the Torres Strait. Um, and so what they're basically doing is asking the court to find that the government has a duty of care to them and to all people in the Torres Strait Islands. And they need to take steps to reduce climate harms. And what that really means is reduce emissions in line with the best available science and commit to adaptation measures in the Torres Strait that will actually give people a good lasting quality of life in the Torres Strait as climate impacts worsen up there. And, and it seems that this duty of care argument is uh, one which is being used a fair bit around Australia. And there's also a strong international precedent now for this kind of case. Can you talk us through about that legal context? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, the basic idea is following the very successful and really probably most ever successful global climate litigation case in the world, which was in the Netherlands, which... The court there found that the Dutch government had a duty of care to its citizens and had to reduce emissions in line with the science. That was back in 2015 and they won several times on appeal as well. And since then, organisations and, and people around the world have sort of looked at how could we also enforce a duty of care against our governments. And, you know, we all, as people and citizens, tend to think, well, you know, there is a duty of care, whether the court says so or not, there's sort of moral duty of care. But if you can establish a legal duty of care, you can also establish legal accountability for the actions of governments, which is massive. And Sharma, who was the young woman who brought that previous case in Australia, was seeking for there to be a duty of care in legislation where the environmental minister had to consider, you know, the young people of Australia's future when making environmental decisions around, for example, new mines. 
Um, and she won at first instance, but yes, lost on appeal and is now fighting in Parliament. Obviously a complicated case, but it's one that we think there are really good grounds to succeed. You've got a, a, a long list of, uh, of eminent uh, expert witnesses uh, coming before the court. That's right. We've been hearing from people like Professor David Caroli, who's a world leader in atmospheric climate science, former chief scientist of CSIRO. We've been hearing people like Professor Linda Selvia, health expert, Terry Hughes, a marine biology expert, John Church, sea level rise expert, and then Professor Malta Meinhausen, who's a particularly interesting expert in that he talks about Australia's contribution to global carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions mm. and really our significant contribution in the global context. Um, there are others as well, and it's been really interesting. I think, you know, the thing that's been quite notable and the trend that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks of the government's approach in court has been, to be honest, kind of concerning. If you compare it to the previous government, their approach to climate change litigation has for the last kind of few years of its term, at least, been to acknowledge the climate science and concede that in court um, and, and try and win on other kind of legal grounds. Whereas this government, despite holding itself out as sort of ending the climate wars, is really, its council are attempting to undermine the climate science. You say the tide is turning. You say that uh, as, as more courts are asked to hear these cases, we're seeing the beginnings of a wave, wave of legal decisions. Are you feeling hopeful? Yeah, look, I am. And I think it's a matter of time when it comes to climate change and accountability. The courts are really well positioned to get to the truth about Australia's climate action because they're designed to focus on facts and not political spin. But also the science on climate change is just so well established that there's nowhere really left for the government to hide. I think over time, courts are going to catch up with the detail of the facts of climate science and it ultimately will lead to a conclusion that it's untenable for there not to be accountability for the harm that's being caused. Mm. So I'm hopeful that that accountability will come in this case, but if it doesn't, it really is a matter of time till regulation and, and the law uh, catches up with government. Executive Director of the Grata Fund, Isabel Reinecke, speaking with River FM's Sean O'Shaughnessy. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Last week, the High Court delivered an historic ruling outlawing the indefinite detention of non-citizens. Following the decision, 80 refugees were released immediately, with 92 more made eligible for release. Federal government has introduced a suite of conditions in response to the refugees' release, imposing monitoring mechanisms including ankle bracelets and curfews. While refugee advocates agree the High Court decision was a step in the right direction, there's concerns the conditions of their release are unnecessary, inhumane and may infringe on refugees' freedoms. The Wire's Ariana Mahmood spoke with Associate Professor Kate Ogg from the Australian National University to find out more. David, thank you very much for your time today. Um, you know, this High Court immigration ruling that passed down last week, um, for many people uh, are being released and for refugee advocate groups, they're saying that this is a win. But is this really a win, um, do you think, with the, given, given the recent development of the security measures in place? Oh, well, certainly it is. The landmark High Court ruling is a, a victory for the rule of law 
and uh, the right to liberty in this country and also for basic humanity. It overturns a 20-year precedent which, from the High Court in the El Khatib case, which had ruled that indefinite detention of an asylum seeker was lawful, um, that, you know, someone could be detained potentially forever. And uh, this overturns that precedent. And that's so important. But, of course, the government's response um, in the last couple of days is a profound concern. And could you speak um, to that a little bit, you know, what is concerning about the new developments around putting um, even uh, ankle monitors and curfews um, on asylum seekers and refugees? Yeah, look, the starting point for all of this is uh, that the government already has extensive powers, wide-ranging powers to impose conditions on people if they're released from immigration detention. We have people uh, that we've been acting for who have been released on the, in the wake of the High Court ruling, in accordance with that ruling, who have had 18 separate conditions imposed on them by the government. So the real question that arises here is, why is it necessary to have even more powers and even broader conditions than already exist? Why all of a sudden is that deemed necessary? And uh, the real concern here, of course, is these new laws seem to be based on a belief that people who are being released from detention uh, pose some serious risk to the community, but without any evidence produced. Uh, and this is for people who, for whom it's been years after they served a sentence for any offence. I mean, they've already served that sentence, and uh, and years later, after being then held as a form of double punishment, then being transferred to immigration detention. And you mentioned about this double punishment. So these people who are being released now and who have these uh, control measures in place, these people who have served their sentences before, then they went into immigration detention and now there are these control measures. Why Why is this being justified? What are the legal and human rights concerns with these with these uh, situation? For people who um, uh, have um, served a sentence uh, for an offence, under the ordinary protections of Australian law, they would normally have been released into the community, as happens for Australian citizens. Instead, people were uh, had this double punishment imposed on them of, uh, of the worst kind of after serving that sentence, instead of being released into the community. But, but why? Um, why is this deemed to be necessary? This is David Mann speaking with me. He is the Executive Director of Refugee Legal. I also spoke with Associate Professor Kate Ogg from the Australian National University, who mentioned similarly to David the vital importance of the High Court ruling on human rights in Australia, but that the federal government's proposal of monitoring mechanisms is unjustifiable. My reaction to the High Court's ruling last week and this might sound very dramatic but i think it removed a stain on our national soul and now kate how has this issue been reported in the media what kind of problems are you seeing in the way people are perceiving and understanding these asylum seekers and refugees yeah so i think the problem with the way many parts of the media are reporting this decision and its consequences it creates a broad brush it seems to be indicating that all of these uh, people who have been in immigration detention, who have or, or will be released because of the High Court's decision last week, are somehow dangerous. Uh, or, or all of them have been convicted of criminal offences, which is simply not the case. So there's a broad brush criminalisation 
um, of those people. Very problematic and very unfair. There has been a recent development in this situation. For the first time, a breach of a visa condition will now be a criminal offence with a mandatory sentence of one year imprisonment. Each day that a visa condition is breached can be treated as a separate offence. This means for the first time, if a person, particularly these refugees and asylum seekers being released, forgets to inform the government of a new housemate or an interstate trip, they could be prosecuted for multiple offences and face imprisonment for years. You know, I, I, I think the real threat posed to the life of the nation under the rule of law and liberty is not the release of people from indefinite detention, but from laws which seek to detain people. That's the real threat. That was David Mann, Executive Director of Refugee Legal, ending the report by The Wire's Ariana Mahmood. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio, and to the other side of the country on Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A simple bag of spores has given an Australian startup the opportunity to revolutionise agriculture and mitigate climate change at the same time. A group of New South Wales farmers developed the idea of turning carbon dioxide into plant-based carbon using spores which absorb and convert the CO2. The fungi keeps the subsoil carbon underground for hundreds of years, unlike conventional plants, which release the carbon back into the atmosphere when they die. National Radio News' Frank Bonacorso spoke to Loam Bio co-founder Guy Webb about the inspiration behind Loam. Frank Loam was inspired by um, a desire to do something about climate change initially um, at the same time as soil health. Uh, working as an agronomist um, out in the central west um, I you know, had a passion for building soil health and that quickly became about building soil carbon because soil carbon is like a central metric for soil health. If you measure soil carbon and it's high, you must be doing something right and all the other characteristics of the soil are improving. And then when I started sort of learning more about the issues with climate change that surrounded climate change, that was my context. I guess I could say, well, I know that if we can pull carbon down into the soil, that's good for my job as an agronomist, but hey, that could be really good for the climate as well. And then you get back of the envelope out and do some quick numbers of how many hectares of agriculture there are in the world and how many tonnes of carbon they've got to be pulled down, you can quickly see that agriculture has a gigaton carbon sequestration ability if we can give the farmer the tool to be able to do that job for society and give them some benefit. And that's really what started Loam, is the uh, stumbling across a technology out of Sydney Uni that was researching that very thing. So how have you commercialised and indeed packaged sequestration for use by the average farmer? Yeah, look, you've got to pick your targets when you start talking about climate change in regional Australia. I think farmers feel like they're being you know, a little bit victimised sometimes in the climate space, that it's your fault. You know, you've got the burping cow and the, the belching tractor and all the rest of it, so they're a bit sensitive about it. Some are more open than others. 
and indeed I'm going over to the Midwest um, in early January to talk to a section of the community over there that will be completely anti-climate change. They don't want to have that conversation at all. But we don't have to have the conversation about climate change because it's putting carbon in your air, it's a free, re in your soil rather, it's a free resource from the air, no one's charging you for it. And if you can supply the technology that's economical to allow you to put a lot of it in your soil and someone will pay you to do that plus it in, uh, more greatly ensures your crop to um, grow more grain because your soils are getting healthier and hanging on to more water in droughts and so on, um, you end up with this um, dialogue that you don't have to talk about climate change at all. It's about the farmer. It's about the farmer making uh, more money per hectare and leaving an asset behind to their children that's in a better shape than what they got it. I'm a farmer. I'm interested in sequestration. I know nothing about it. What do I need to do to start from the beginning to sow a crop with the aid of loam sequestration? Yeah, so it's a, a two-speed thing. One is the technology, and that's the simple part, and that was the beauty of it is make it simple and people will adopt things if it's not too complicated. You know, if it, as soon as you complicate something, the adoption curve falls away, and then that's across the board with anything. So this idea, it is as simple as um, a bag of spores, fungal spores, and you sprinkle that on your seed, stick it on your seed and sow the crop as per normal. So there's no other kind of wild and woolly things that you have to do. It's really that simple. So uh, farmers are quite blown away by, by that side of it, that, you know, oh, they want us to sequester carbon, like that's going to be complex, yes. So, no, nah, it's just a matter of putting a fungus on the seed and just go about your day, like nothing else changes. And the fungus attracts carbon? Yeah, that's right. The fungus uses the carbohydrate flow from the plant to convert the plant carbon into fungal carbon, and it's that fungal carbon that is, stays in the soil for hundreds of years. Uh, it's really recalcitrant and, and highly measurable, um, and it does it at an elevated rate, quite a significantly elevated rate. So that's the first side, the technology and the adoption of the technology. If you just want to build carbon just for carbon's sake, but you're leaving a lot of money on the table in this current economy because carbon's worth money. It's another crop that you could be growing, um, but this one's underground, but you can still monetise it. You can harvest it by way of a saw core. So there's a methodology to how you core your paddocks um, so that you can prove that you've sequestered that carbon and it gets converted into what they call an ACU, Australian Carbon Credit Unit, which is a fungible item backed by the Australian government. Um, so it's a highly regarded fungible carbon unit and that's uh, worth money and it's uh, you know another it's a what we call a stacked enterprise you've got your grain enterprise on top and your carbon enterprise underneath and they both are virtually virtuously looking after each other national radio news frank bonacorso there speaking with guy webb from lone bio a new study of Australian beach safety signage has shed light on the shortcomings of current beach safety messaging. A collaboration between the University of Adelaide and the UNSW Beach Safety Research Group, the study found approximately half of both domestic and international student groups misunderstood common beach safety signage. By identifying these misunderstandings, the study aims to prevent accidental beach drownings, especially among young and linguistically diverse people.
The Wire's Tony Pankalewik spoke with Dr Masaki Shibata, lecturer at the University of Adelaide and Tamarama Lifeguard, to hear more on the study's findings. I'm a surf lifesaver in Tamarama Beach in Sydney. And when I became a lifesaver, I realised that the language is very complicated and some of the explanations that the trainer gave me, I could not understand. And therefore, I started being interested in beach safety language and signage. And so from this study, this year, we wanted to look at a little bit more and also wanted to focus on young beachgoers who often have trouble with rip currents. What we did was focusing on university students and ask their interpretation of the signs. So three things we asked. One is basically those swim swimming the flags, no flags, no swim, very typical one. And the second one is about the terms, shore dump, shore break, high surf, submerged objects and blue bottle. And these terms are often, these terms are often used in many beaches in Australia, especially in New South Wales. And then the last one is signage icon, because if the international visitors come to Australia, if they don't speak English, then they're probably more likely to rely on the signage icon. We wanted to see what they think about those icons. You mentioned international students. Is the knowledge of the signs and the terminology, does it differ with international students, say East Asians, whether it be you know Chinese, Japanese, because it's mm. closer proximity to Australia, they might have a little bit of a better knowledge than say, I don't know, like in mm. Eastern Europe somewhere. Like, did you ever find <laughs> that in the research? This isn't my understanding. As a lifesaver and interaction with a lot of lifesavers and beach scores, a lot of Australian people believe that they understand science but our study shows that 55% of domestic students did not understand short dump and short break. And on top of that, about 50% of domestic students also think that red and yellow flags are for surfers as well, which is absolutely wrong mm-hmm. because surfers and swimmers should not be in the same place. It's just one of the most dangerous things you ever do. So the first place is that domestic students, let's say the native speakers, do not understand signs. Hence, uh, it's not necessarily cultural either. Although, yes, of course, the international students, let's say red and yellow, our new study, which have not been published yet, so I can't really say anything much, but that preliminary finding shows that the Japanese people living in Japan, when they see the red and yellow flag, 60% of them think that that's danger zone. Because it's like yellow is probably warning and red and yellow, red means no, you know, prohibition really. So traffic lights. I think that there are a little bit of a misunderstanding. However, that we kind of have to stop, think that Australian people understand and the international don't. It's actually, our study shows that Australian people don't. So I think that's the key we wanted to deliver from this study. What further research do you believe should be done to help broaden public's understanding and how should any potential findings be implemented nationwide? Of course, the number of advertisements we can actually make. But as you probably noticed, I mean, Qantas already released a video in an airplane. And also when you come to Sydney, you see the huge sign of burning yellow flags. And also beach safety experts and especially UNSW Beach Safety Research Group, they conducted some research to evaluate the workshop by an expert and it's been really working well. However, what I actually found, these advertisements or having workshops is quite time consuming and costly and hence that it can be a little bit limited to run something like that. 
I face this issue, but actually our team started a new project now, developing IELTS English language materials, incorporating the beach safety information. Because lots of migrants come to Australia and take IELTS to get into university and to get a visa, and I was migrant. And now we were developing practice materials and incorporating the beach safety. And then the users do not have to actually be interested in the beach or beach safety. You know that when you give it a workshop, if they're not interested in the beach, they don't think that there are risky beach scores, they may not listen. They may not attend to the information. Whereas IELTS, they are studying English and they have to read carefully and meaningfully to answer the questions that are given on exercise. Hence that, using this situation, we are actually developing the materials and then hopefully around February or early March, we are going to run the experiment. So give it a survey and then give it the materials and after that, give another survey to check how much their beach safety knowledge has changed and also so the attitude towards Australian beaches. And then we will probably run another post-test later to see how much they retain those information. That was Dr Masaki Shibata there, ending the report by The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.